This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 38. Return to Constantinople. We sail for Asia. The sailors burlesque the imperial visitors. Ancient Smyrna. The Oriental Splendor Fraud. The Biblical Crown of Life. Pilgrim Prophecy Savants. Sociable Armenian Girls. A Sweet Reminiscence. The Camels Are Coming. Ha ha. We return to Constantinople, and after a day or two spent in exhausting marches about the city, and voyages up the Golden Horn in Caiques, we steamed away again. We passed through the Sea of Marmora and the Dardanelles, and steered for a new land—a new one to us, at least—Asia. We had as yet only acquired a bowing acquaintance with it, through pleasure excursions to Scutari and the regions round about. We passed between Lemnos and Mytilene, and saw them as we had seen Elba and the Balearic Isles, mere bulky shapes, with the softening mists of distance upon them, whales in a fog, as it were. Then we held our course southward, and began to read up celebrated Smyrna. At all hours of the day and night the sailors in the forecastle amused themselves and aggravated us by burlesquing our visit to royalty. The opening paragraph of our address to the Emperor was framed as follows. We are a handful of private citizens of America, travelling simply for recreation, and unostentatiously, as becomes our unofficial state, and therefore we have no excuse to tender for presenting ourselves before your Majesty, save the desire of offering our grateful acknowledgments to the Lord of a realm which, through good and through evil report, has been the steadfast friend of the land we love so well. The third cook, crowned with a resplendent tin basin and wrapped royally in a tablecloth mottled with grease-spots and coffee-stains, and bearing a sceptre that looked strangely like a belaying-pin, walked upon a dilapidated carpet and perched himself on the capstan, careless of the flying spray. His tarred and weather-beaten chamberlains, dukes and lord high admirals surrounded him, arrayed in all the pomp that spare tarpaulins and remnants of old sails could furnish. Then the visiting watch below, transformed into graceless ladies and uncouth pilgrims, by rude travesties upon waterfalls, hoop-skirts, white kid gloves, and swallow-tail coats, moved solemnly up the companionway, and, bowing low, began a system of complicated and extraordinary smiling, which few monarchs could look upon and live. Then the mock consul, a slush-plastered deck-sweep, drew out a soiled fragment of paper, and proceeded to read, laboriously, To His Imperial Majesty Alexander the Second, Emperor of Russia, we are a handful of private citizens of America, travelling simply for recreation, and unostentatiously, as becomes our unofficial state, and therefore we have no excuse to tender for presenting ourselves before your majesty. The Emperor. Then what the devil did you come for? Save the desire of offering our grateful acknowledgments to the lord of a realm which— The Emperor. Oh, damn the address! Read it to the police. Chamberlain, take these people over to my brother, the Grand Dukes, and give them a square meal. Adieu! I am happy. I am gratified. I am delighted. I am bored. Adieu! Adieu! Vamos the ranch! 
The first groom of the palace will proceed to count the portable articles of value belonging to the premises. The farce then closed, to be repeated again with every change of the watches, and embellished with new and still more extravagant inventions of pomp and conversation. At all times of the day and night the phraseology of that tiresome address fell upon our ears. Grimy sailors came down out of the forestep, placidly announcing themselves as a handful of private citizens of America, traveling simply for recreation and unostentatiously, etc. The coal-passers moved to their duties in the profound depths of the ship, explaining the blackness of their faces and their uncouthness of dress, with the reminder that they were a handful of private citizens traveling simply for recreation, etc., and when the cry rang through the vessel at midnight, Eight bells! Larboard watch! Turn out! The larboard watch came gaping and stretching out of their den, with the everlasting formula, Aye, aye, sir! We are a handful of private citizens of America, traveling simply for recreation and unostentatiously, as becomes our unofficial state. As I was a member of the committee, and helped to frame the address, these sarcasms came home to me. I never heard a sailor proclaiming himself as a handful of American citizens traveling for recreation, but I wished he might trip and fall overboard, and so reduce his handful by one individual at least. I never was so tired of any one phrase as the sailors made me of the opening sentence of the address to the Emperor of Russia. This seaport of Smyrna, our first notable acquaintance in Asia, is a closely packed city of one hundred and thirty thousand inhabitants, and, like Constantinople, it has no outskirts. It is as closely packed at its outer edges as it is in the centre, and then the habitations leave suddenly off, and the plain beyond seems houseless. It is just like any other oriental city. That is to say, its Moslem houses are heavy and dark, and as comfortless as so many tombs. Its streets are crooked, rudely and roughly paved, and as narrow as an ordinary staircase. The streets uniformly carry a man to any other place than the one he wants to go to, and surprise him by landing him in the most unexpected localities. Business is chiefly carried on in great covered bazaars, celled like a honeycomb with innumerable shops no larger than a common closet and the whole hive cut up into a maze of alleys about wide enough to accommodate a laden camel, and well calculated to confuse a stranger and eventually lose him. Everywhere there is dirt, everywhere there are fleas, everywhere there are lean, broken-hearted dogs. Every alley is thronged with people. Wherever you look your eyes rests upon a wild masquerade of extravagant costumes. The workshops are all open to the streets, and the workmen visible. All manner of sounds assail the ear, and over them all rings out the muezzin's cry from some tall minaret, calling the faithful vagabonds to prayer. And superior to the call to prayer, the noises in the streets, the interest of the costumes, superior to everything, and claiming the bulk of attention first, last, and all the time, is a combination of Mohammedan stenches, to which the smell of even a Chinese quarter would be as pleasant as the roasting odours of the fatted calf to the nostrils of the returning prodigal. Such is Oriental luxury, such is Oriental splendour. We read about it all our days, but we comprehend it not until we see it. Smyrna is a very old city. Its name occurs several times in the Bible. 
one or two of the disciples of Christ visited it, and here was located one of the original seven apocalyptic churches spoken of in Revelations. These churches were symbolized in the scriptures as candlesticks, and on certain conditions there was a sort of implied promise that Smyrna should be endowed with a crown of life. She was to be faithful unto death. Those were the terms. She has not kept up her faith straight along, but the pilgrims that wander hither consider that she has come near enough to it to save her, and so they point to the fact that Smyrna, to-day, wears her crown of life, and is a great city, with a great commerce and full of energy, while the cities wherein were located the other six churches, and to which no crown of life was promised, have vanished from the earth. So Smyrna really still possesses her crown of life, in a business point of view. Her career for eighteen centuries has been a checkered one, and she has been under the rule of princes of many creeds, yet there has been no season during all that time, as far as we know, and during such seasons as she was inhabited at all, that she has been without her little community of Christians, faithful unto death. Hers was the only church against which no threats were implied in the revelations, and the only one which survived. With Ephesus, forty miles from here, where was located another of the seven churches, the case was different. The candlestick has been removed from Ephesus. Her light has been put out. Pilgrims, always prone to find prophecies in the Bible, and often where none exist, speak cheerfully and complacently of poor ruined Ephesus as the victim of prophecy. And yet there is no sentence that promises, without due qualification, the destruction of the city. The words are, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. That is all. The other verses are singularly complementary to Ephesus. The threat is qualified. There is no history to show that she did not repent. But the cruelest habit the modern prophecy savants have is that one of coolly and arbitrarily fitting the prophetic shirt on to the wrong man. They do it without regard to rhyme or reason. Both the cases I have just mentioned are instances in point. Those prophecies are distinctly leveled at the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, etc., and yet the pilgrims invariably make them refer to the cities instead. No crown of life is promised to the town of Smyrna and its commerce, but to the handful of Christians who formed its church. If they were faithful unto death, they have their crown now. But no amount of faithfulness and legal shrewdness combined could legitimately drag the city into a participation in the promises of the prophecy. The stately language of the Bible refers to a crown of life whose luster will reflect the day-beams of the endless ages of eternity not the butterfly existence of a city built by men's hands, which must pass to dust with the builders, and be forgotten even in the mere handful of centuries vouchsafed to the solid world itself between its cradle and its grave. The fashion of delving out fulfillments of prophecy where that prophecy consists of mere ifs trenches upon the absurd. Suppose, a thousand years from now, a malarious swamp builds itself up in the shallow harbour of Smyrna, or something else kills the town. And suppose, also, that within that time the swamp that has filled the renowned harbour of Ephesus, and rendered her ancient site deadly and uninhabitable to-day, becomes hard and healthy ground. Suppose the natural consequence ensues, to wit, that Smyrna becomes a melancholy ruin, 
and Ephesus is rebuilt. What would the prophecy savants say? They would coolly skip over our age of the world, and say, Smyrna was not faithful unto death, and so her crown of life was denied her. Ephesus repented, and, lo, her candlestick was not removed. Behold these evidences! How wonderful is prophecy! Smyrna has been utterly destroyed six times. If her crown of life had been an insurance policy, she would have had an opportunity to collect on it the first time she fell. But she holds it on sufferance, and by a complementary construction of language which does not refer to her. Six different times, however, I suppose some infatuated prophecy enthusiast blundered along and said, to the infinite disgust of Smyrna and the Smyrniotes, In sooth here is astounding fulfillment of prophecy. Smyrna hath not been faithful unto death, and behold her crown of life is vanished from her head. Verily these things be astonishing. Such things have a bad influence. They provoke worldly men into using light conversation concerning sacred subjects. Thick-headed commentators upon the Bible and stupid preachers and teachers work more damage to religion than sensible cool-brained clergymen can fight away again, toil as they may. It is not good judgment to fit a crown of life upon a city which has been destroyed six times. That other class of wiseacres, who twist prophecy in such a manner as to make it promise the destruction and desolation of the same city, use judgment just as bad, since the city is in a very flourishing condition now, unhappily for them. These things put arguments into the mouth of infidelity. A portion of the city is pretty exclusively Turkish. The Jews have a quarter to themselves, the Franks another quarter, so also with the Armenians. The Armenians, of course, are Christians. Their houses are large, clean, airy, handsomely paved with black and white squares of marble, and in the centre of many of them is a square court which has in it a luxuriant flower-garden and a sparkling fountain. The doors of all the rooms open on this. A very wide hall leads to the street-door, and in this the women sit the most of the day. In the cool of the evening they dress up in their best raiment and show themselves at the door. They are all comely of countenance, and exceedingly neat and cleanly. They look as if they were just out of a bandbox. Some of the young ladies, many of them, I may say, are even very beautiful. They average a shade better than American girls, which treasonable words, I pray, may be forgiven me. They are very sociable, and will smile back when a stranger smiles at them, bow back when he bows, and talk back if he speaks to them. No introduction is required. An hour's chat at the door with a pretty girl one never saw before is easily obtained, and is very pleasant. I have tried it. I could not talk anything but English, and the girl knew nothing but Greek, or Armenian, or some such barbarous tongue, but we got along very well. I find that in cases like these the fact that you cannot comprehend each other isn't much of a drawback. In that Russian town of Yalta I danced an astonishing sort of a dance, an hour long, and one I had not heard of before, with a very pretty girl, and we talked incessantly, and laughed exhaustingly, and neither one ever knew what the other was driving at. But it was splendid! There were twenty people in the set, and the dance was very lively and complicated. It was complicated enough without me. With me it was more so. I threw in a figure now and then that surprised those Russians. But I have never ceased to think of that girl. I have written to her but I cannot direct the epistle, because her name is one of those nine-jointed Russian affairs, and there are not letters enough in our alphabet to hold out. 
I am not reckless enough to try to pronounce it when I am awake, but I make a stagger at it in my dreams, and get up with a lockjaw in the morning. I am fading. I do not take my meals now, with any sort of regularity. Her dear name haunts me still in my dreams. It is awful on teeth. It never comes out of my mouth, but it fetches an old snag along with it. And then the lockjaw closes down and nips off a couple of the last syllables, but they taste good. Coming through the Dardanelles we saw camel-trains on shore with glasses, but we were never close to one till we got to Smyrna. These camels are very much larger than the scrawny specimens one sees in the menagerie. They stride along these streets in single file, a dozen in a train, with heavy loads on their backs, and a fancy-looking negro in Turkish costume, or an Arab, preceding them on a little donkey and completely overshadowed, and rendered insignificant by the huge beasts. To see a camel-train laden with the spices of Arabia and the rare fabrics of Persia come marching through the narrow alleys of the bazaar, among porters with their burdens, money-changers, lamp-merchants, al-nashars in the glassware business, portly cross-legged Turks smoking the famous nargali, and the crowds drifting to and fro in the fanciful costumes of the East, is a genuine revelation of the Orient. The picture lacks nothing. It casts you back at once into your forgotten boyhood, and again you dream over the wonders of the Arabian Nights. Again your companions are princes, your lord is the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, and your servants are terrific giants and genii that come with smoke and lightning and thunder, and go as a storm goes when they depart. End of chapter 38